Thank you, Brody. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're in Isaiah 27. So you might like to turn uh, there, please. Isaiah 27, and uh, before I read the passage, uh, why don't I pray? Uh, Father, thank you for your word, and we pray that as we look at this passage, uh, you would uh, speak to us, uh, strengthen us, encourage us, and deepen our trust in the Lord Jesus, and we ask it in his name. Amen. In that day, uh, the Lord, with his hard and great and strong sword, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it, I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle, I would march out against them. I would burn them up together, or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Measure by measure, by exile, you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces, no asherim or incense altars will remain standing, for the fortified city is solitary, a habitation deserted and forsaken like the wilderness. There the calf grazes, there it lies down and strips its branches. When its boughs are dry, they are broken. Women come and make a fire of them, for this is a people without discernment. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. In that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain, and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown, and those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Uh, let me begin by asking you, uh, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Uh, pessimism has its advantages. Uh, Benjamin Franklin famously said, at least according to the internet, um, blessed is he that expects nothing, for he will never be disappointed. Uh, as Christians, though, ultimate pessimism is not an option. Our basic stance is one of waiting waiting for a better future, waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for the new creation, waiting for him, as Paul says, to transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. But even the most optimistic, forward-straining uh, Christian has to wrestle with disappointments. Uh, the future is not here yet, and the present is often painful and challenging. Uh, Paul describes the Christian as waiting, but also as groaning, longing for that better future. And so there is a deep tension that all of us have to wrestle with. And uh, the same tension lies at the heart of our passage this morning. 
It's uh, right there in verses 6. Uh, we see the, the perfect future in verse 6. In days to come, Jacob shall take root. Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. But then the very next verse, Isaiah asks, has he struck them? Has he struck those who struck them? Have they been slain as their slayers were slain? And perhaps uh, in an even more fundamental way, uh, we have this tension in what God says about himself. Verse 4, I have no wrath. Wow, what a, a wonderful uh, thing for God to say. I have no wrath, no anger. And yet in verse 11, he who made them will have no compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. So in the future, no wrath, no anger, but in the present, no compassion no favor. Every Christian wrestles with disappointment. Every Christian longs as we grow, uh, long for things to be different, to be uh, the way they are meant to be. I think possibly this disappointment is particularly acute for those in pastoral ministry uh, because the sense of things being uh, not as they should be or what they could be is magnified because you don't just see it in yourself. You see it in the people that you are serving. Uh, you see growth and you're encouraged, but so often you see people slide backwards and you're discouraged. A pastor friend recently wrote to me, I always thought energy and optimism were my secret power, the thing that kept me from burnout. But here I am struggling to function and on four weeks of medical leave to recover from it all. I'm not fully aware of what caused it, I just think, I, I think just the collective toll of a thousand difficulties and disappointments. What do we do with this tension? Well, in one sense, we have to learn to cope with it. It's part of living in the fallen world. And yet I think the Bible does equip us. Not that we won't struggle, not that we won't struggle profoundly, but so that ultimately we won't give up. And one way the Bible does that is to reorientate our thinking. Uh, so that while we groan, we don't groan without understanding. We don't groan without hope. Yes, there is disappointment, but that's not all there is. There will be a time when groaning will be over, when we will no longer be disappointed. And so throughout the Bible, we're reminded that we do not labor in vain. Isaiah 27 is at the end of uh, what... Uh, commentators like to call Isaiah's little apocalypse, chapters 24 to 27, when he focuses on the restoration of Israel and, in fact, uh, the restoration of uh, creation. And so we'll see, like the rest of this section, uh, this chapter has a strong focus on the future, but it doesn't just point us to the future. Uh, it shows us the challenging present, but it shows us, I think, the deep connection between the present and the future. And I think understanding that helps us to live in uh, a world where we have to grapple with that tension. Uh, but firstly, the perfect future. Isaiah gives us uh, three dimensions to the perfect future. Uh, first of all, the defeat of evil in verse 1. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in uh, the sea. Uh, the imagery here uh, is uh, rich and complex, but it affirms that part of the problem facing Judah is the basic problem of evil. 
if things are going to be fixed in Judah, then evil needs to be defeated. Uh, the terms that appear here are used uh, in different places in the Bible, uh, but this uh, serpent, monster, dragon, Leviathan is a symbol of evil and opposition to God. But ultimately, God will defeat him decisively forever. Uh, the serpent that corrupted the garden is defeated. And so the second aspect of the perfect future is the transformation of Judah. Uh, we're not in a garden, but in a vineyard, uh, a perfect vineyard. Uh, back in chapter 5, God had described his people as a vineyard, a vineyard that he uh, nurtured and cared for, but which had not yielded any fruit. And so God had resolved to make the vineyard a waste, to no longer care for it so that briars and thorns would uh, overtake it. Uh, he would command the, the, the clods not to rain on it. It's a picture of how Israel and Jerusalem had failed in their God-given role to bring blessing to the world and how God had responded in wrath. But in our passage, the once rejected vineyard has been restored and transformed. Verse 2, on that day, sing, a, a sing about a desirable vineyard. Verse 6, in days to come, Jacob will take root, Israel will blossom and bloom and fill the whole world with fruit. Uh, in many ways, that's uh, the, the kind of main thread of Isaiah, the fruitless, overrun vineyard, becoming the fruitful, protected vineyard. In many ways, it's the story of the Bible. Uh, the vineyard makes us think of the garden, where God looked for obedience, but found disobedience instead. Uh, the garden became a wasteland, but the garden will one day be restored in the form of a city coming down from heaven, a perfect city where righteousness dwells securely forever. And right at the heart of it is the God who transforms. Listen to what Isaiah says later about the Lord. Uh, the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found there. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. God is a God who transforms the waste places to be like the garden of the Lord, places where joy and gladness and thanksgiving and singing are found. And he does more than transform, he protects. No one can now oppose God's people. God will protect them, verse 3. I, the Lord, am its keeper. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath. Would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. So deep is his love for Israel. It's almost as if God wishes there were opponents that he could battle to show his love for them. Back in Joshua 23, the Lord had warned Israel that if they didn't fully drive out the nations from the land, uh, the nations would be like thorns or briars who would be a trap for them in turning them away from the Lord. But not only has the Lord defeated these thorns and briars, driven them out of the land, he actually envisages the possibility of them turning to the Lord, verse 5. Or let them lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. So Isaiah is looking forward to the defeat of evil, uh, the serpent con uh, conquered, the transformation of Israel, and even the transformation 
of Israel's uh, enemies. And the passage ends with the third aspect of the future, the worship of God. Verse 12, in that day, from the river Euphrates to the brook of Egypt, the Lord will thresh out the grain and you will be gleaned one by one, O people of Israel. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out to the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. And just as the Lord rescued Israel from Egypt to worship him, they'll be rescued from uh, the nations. Uh, Egypt, uh, the first to take them captive. Assyria, the latest uh, to, to take them captive to worship God on his holy mountain. And so sinful, compromised Zion will be transformed into a worshipping people. Anticipating uh, the, uh, uh, the end of the Bible. Uh, the picture not just of Israel, but believers from every nation worshipping God. Uh, this end time worship of God, uh, it's a wonderful vision that finishes this section of Isaiah as it looks to the future. However, uh, the question that nags at Isaiah is the question of the challenging present. We've got the perfect future, the challenging present. Because Israel, north and south, have been struck by the nations around them. And that's what Isaiah wrestles with in uh, verses 6 and 7. Uh, the ideal, we've said, end of verse 6, uh, you know, transformed Israel, bringing uh, good fruit to the world. And yet in Isaiah's day, they have been struck, verse 7. They have been punished. And so Isaiah asks, has he struck them as he struck those who struck them? Or have they been slain as their slayers were slain? Are we just like everyone else? Is God just treating us like everyone else? Well, the answer is no. God has dealt harshly with his people, but not in the same way that he's dealt with the other nations. It differs in uh, proportion. That seems to be the language at the beginning of verse 8. Measure by measure, uh, by exile you contended with them. He removed them with his fierce breath in the day of the east wind. Uh, God's wrath does run through this uh, section of the uh, chapter. But there is hope in the midst of that wrath. Yes, they're re removed from his presence because of his wrath. But it is measure by measure. God has carefully measured out the judgment of exile so as not to destroy the people, but to bring them to purification. Uh, the punishment is perfectly fitted to the crime. And so as well as differing in proportion, it differs in purpose. Uh, Israel hasn't experienced God's punishment uh, the way the nations have. They've experienced the way uh, the discipline a way that a father disciplines a son and that is meant to lead to their transformation. And so verse 9, therefore by this guilt of Jacob, uh, by this, the guilt of Jacob will be atoned for. And this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes all the stones of the altars like chalk stones crushed to pieces. No asherim or incense altars will remain standing. Israel will have her sins atoned for. Now, Isaiah doesn't give us a full theology of atonement uh, at uh, this point. I think that comes uh, later uh, in the book. But he connects uh, atonement and repentance. And so verse 9 explains why Israel's discipline will be different from her uh, enemy's punishment. 
Uh, when the people finally realize that the gods that they've been following after are nothing, well, the full fruit of the consequences of that will be seen in their repentance as they smash these altars and idols. And that external act will signify a change in their heart devotion, a, a sign that forgiveness is possible. And so really the, the center of the passage is in verse 7 uh, to 11, uh, which lays out the two possible responses to what God has promised to do. There is the response of uh, repentance, uh, Isaiah describing the full fruit of atonement. Uh, this will be the full fruit of the removal of his sin when he makes the stones of altars like chalk stones, when he smashes uh, his uh, uh, altars, the, uh, the idols of the nations. It was idolatry uh, that sent the northern kingdom into exile. But the Lord promises that for those who have gone through the purification of exile, if they repent by destroying their idols, uh, they will be restored. That's the fruit of what God has done. The contrast, though, is given in verses 10 to 11. Here is a picture of people living in a fortified city, relying, in other words, not on the Lord, but on their own defenses, but in the end being reduced to a wilderness. Why? Well, verse 11 seems to picture people burning wood for altar fires. Uh, pictures of people who are without discernment. People who don't trust God, don't look to him for help, but continue to trust in themselves and their fortifications and in their idols as they build uh, their altars. And the response, the terrifying response of the Lord to a people like that, who refuse to trust in him, is devastating. End of verse 11. Therefore, he who made them will not have compassion on them. He who formed them will show them no favor. They reject God. He rejects them. And so the bridge in this passage, this chapter between the present and the future, is very simply turning to God in faith and repentance. Isaiah and the faithful remnant in his day were to turn from their idols and turn towards the Lord, and then they would know his grace. Then they would know a God who has no wrath. And that's the basic point that Isaiah's been making through uh, these chapters, uh, that waiting, turning away from idols, the idols of the nations, waiting and turning to the Lord, that is the basic stance of what it means to be a believer. It was true of Isaiah, it's true of us, but we have more than Isaiah because the future for us is not just the future for us, it has begun already. Uh, Paul reminds us uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. In Colossians, he tells us that Christ in us is the hope of glory. And the connections in this chapter uh, to Christ are profound. Because Christ is the one who defeated evil forever by his death and resurrection. Christ is the true vine. Christ has rescued and brought back uh, the exile, the lost. Christ is the true worshiper and the one himself worthy of worship. Because of Christ, God says to us, I have no wrath. 
So there is a disconnect between the future and the present. Uh, the Christian life is not just one triumph after another. It is a life of groaning. But it's also a life of hope that is shaped by the promises of God that are all yes and amen in Christ, the one who bridges the present and the future. In Christ, by the Spirit, we have begun to experience the future. Uh, this perfect future that Isaiah holds out here is not merely in the future for us. In Christ, we have it already. Very simply, as Christians, we have the perfect future in Christ. And so we cling to him. It's all we can do, but he will never disappoint us. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these uh, wonderful words. We thank you that uh, you have no wrath. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We thank you for this uh, wonderful chapter in Isaiah and how it so clearly points us to the hope that we have in the gospel. And we pray that we would uh, continue turning away from our sin and turning towards you, the one who holds out this hope in Christ. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.